Grace and peace to you. I'm Vicar Derek Kabilis, and this is Exile Cast for Wednesday, the 23rd of February in the year of our Lord 2022. I once again want to invite you to make space and time in your life to celebrate Lent this year. It's coming one week from today. We will be having an Ash Wednesday service here at the church at 7 p.m. If you would like to participate in that, please come on down and receive your ashes. You know, just as we tithe 10% of our income back to God, so we tithe approximately 10% of our year, that is 40 days, that we devote to focusing on our Christian walk. There's no single right way to practice Lent. You know, some folks give up something simple on a temporary basis, like chocolate or pop or meat for 40 days, while others use this time to make more permanent changes to their lives, giving up on the addiction they've been carrying around with them, starting a new dietary regimen or um, exercise, stuff that they, they plan on carrying past the season of Lent, and that's great too. Still others devote themselves to having more time for their spirituality, to making time for prayer, journaling, scripture, other kinds of holy reading, fasting one or two days a week. Folks, there's no one right way to do Lent. But I hope and I pray that you find your own way to make this a particularly holy season. As I said last week, in the ancient church, Lent was a season when those who wished to be baptized were taught the fundamentals of the faith. But it was also a time for those who had been separated from the church, either from lapsed membership or excommunication, to return, to be restored to their place in the congregation, to rehabilitate their membership in the church. I know that there are some folks who have not yet come back to church since the pandemic began. And I know that some of those folks are listening to this podcast or watching our YouTube from home, and they are staying in touch with the church and maintaining their membership well from home. And if that's you, I want you to know that that's totally fine. We appreciate your faithfulness at a distance, and we understand that we've all experienced a a great deal of trauma through this pandemic, and we want you to do what makes you feel safe. However, for those who haven't come back, either for lack of time or motivation or for the sake of some grievance that you might be bearing against me or someone else, or even for the sake of some sort of shame you might be carrying with you, I hope you'll consider coming back home this Lent. 
I invite you to come and take your place once again with your church family to rehabilitate the vows made at your baptism to support the church with your prayers, your presence, your gifts, and your service. Some, I suspect, are probably waiting until I leave in July. And that's understandable, I get it. But I still think it would be really sad. Remember, Jesus said, By this everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. St. Paul told us to strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. He also said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, divisiveness and petty quarrels are so amazingly common in this sin-sick world. But friends, we are not of this world. We are children of our Father in Heaven. And we are citizens of His kingdom of peace, respect, and justice. So I hope you'll come on home. My heart is also heavy with everything that's happening in the Ukraine right now. I hope you'll pray for peace. As really two Orthodox Christian nations, Russia and Ukraine, prepare to fight one another. It's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Christian nations fighting against each other. Pray for cooler heads to prevail. Pray for goodwill. Um, pray for Christ to be made known. We have a sermon for you today. I hope you enjoy it. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to St. Luke, the sixth chapter, it is, I believe, the hardest lesson. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. 
If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to receive as much back again. But you love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be called children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thank you, God. Amen. It must be a miracle that such a community exists where I can read aloud something so ridiculous, say it's the word of God, and have everyone respond, thanks be to God. Please pray with me. And now, most holy and merciful God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well. I wish to preach to you today from the title, The Yellow-Legged Church. The Yellow-Legged Church. Justin was the quintessential bully. He was a tough kid, at least that's how he looked to me. He always had these these bumps and bruises and cuts all over his body that he said he got from these fights that he was in. And he was constantly getting into trouble, getting yelled at by teachers, picking on the other kids. And I, of course, was one of his favorite targets. He loved to just make jokes about how I walked with a limp, how I was overweight, how I wore glasses and a big brace on my right leg. And the worst part of it all was that it was true. I couldn't say anything in response to him because I knew everything he said was technically correct and I would be labeled as a tattle if I went to the teacher. So mostly I just felt trapped. And there I was, in this line, 
line for the bathroom after recess with Justin standing behind me knowing something bad was coming my way. And so we're standing there at the urinals, right? And these are the old school urinals they used to have in schools. Guys, you probably remember these. They went all the way down to the floor, the kind where you have to be really careful with your shoes, right? And we're standing there using the restroom, and off to the side, I see Justin's head just silently, slowly turn toward me. And I look over, and he is looking at me in the eye with this big, stupid grin on his face. And I have no idea what's going on. Why is this bully smiling at me in the bathroom? And that's when I feel it. A warm moisture on my ankle, in my shoe, soaking through my sock. Justin the bully had peed on me. I was dumbfounded. I'd never experienced anything like that before. It was just so, so gross and terrible and infuriating. And the other kids in the bathroom were just as paralyzed as I was totally silent, and the only thing I could hear was Justin laughing and laughing and laughing. And the next few moments were a total blur. But what I do know is that in that moment, I did something. Something I had never done before, and thankfully that I've never done since. I popped him. I'm talking... Buster Douglas style uppercut to the face. And he went down. He was sprayed out all over. Well, yeah, sprayed out all over the bathroom floor. Started crying. And the other boys were silent for a second because they're like, whoa. And then everyone erupted into cheers. And they started giving me high fives and patting me on the back. And it, it was glorious. I felt great in that moment, knowing even that I would be in trouble. But I, I took a stand. I fought back for once. I, I taught the bully a lesson in his own language. And then something odd happened. Of course, we both had to go right to the principal's office. And I was thinking I would get in a lot of trouble. And of course, the principal called Justin's foster parents to come and pick him up. And he would be out of school on a suspension for several days. But then when it was my turn, the principal wanted me to tell him the story. And then he gave me a little bit of a lecture. And then he told me to get my keister back to class. I was the only one who threw a punch, yet no one called my parents, and I never got suspended. And I remember walking back to class with my, my right shoe in a blue giant eagle bag, 
thinking, wow, the principal understood. And of course he did, right? Who could blame me? Who would possibly blame me for doing that? Even the principal knew that my justice that my violence in that instance had to be justified, understandable, if not even warranted. That's just what happens. That's how this world works. You can only take so much before something has to give. And you know what? That time the violence worked. Justin basically left me alone after that. Why? Because I finally spoke to the bully in a language the bully could understand. But you know what? Now that I'm an adult, and I look back at that moment through the eyes of maturity, education, ordination, I wonder, Why did Justin know that language so well? Then I recall that Justin was a foster care kid at a time when the foster care system was terribly, terribly broken. I also remember that he came to us from Florida because his foster home was destroyed by Hurricane Andrew, so he was living in a new house, in a new state, with a new family. And then I think back to those bumps and bruises he always had. The ones he told us he was getting from all the fights that he was having with all those other kids. And now I wonder if those older kids were actually just his foster parents. And then it hits me. For kids like Justin, anger, bullying, violence, it's their native tongue. It is the currency upon which their lives up to that point have been built. It's the very air that they have breathed. They've grown up in it. The, The only water in which they've swam, they are bullies because they think that's what the world demands of them because that's the world that they've seen. They think that toughness, anger, and even violence are simply necessary for the sake of survival. And now I realize that by punching him in the face that day, as good as it may have felt at the time, by speaking his language back to him, so to speak, I only reinforced that perception of his. I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who revile you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. First of all, let me say, no one 
and I mean no one, actually likes this passage. No one loves that this is in the Bible if they think about it carefully enough. This passage coming straight from the mouth of our Lord may, may kind of sound sweet and, and honorable, at least in a hippie Bob Dylan college sophomore liberal arts degree kind of way. But when it comes right down to it, there is something about this passage that just feels so wrong, doesn't it? I mean, there are bullies in this world. A certain degree of toughness is necessary, is it not? To paraphrase Demi Moore in, in A Few Good Men, we all need someone to sit on a wall with a gun and say, nothing's going to happen to you tonight, not on my watch. We may gladly or even begrudgingly appreciate the sentiment of Jesus' words here, but in our hearts, we know that on some level, we live in a world that is built and held together through the force and threat of violence. Well, that may very well may be. But I'm here to tell you today that as silly as it may sound, none of that matters. Yes, this society is built and maintained through violence. Yes, the freedoms you enjoy are only possible because somewhere there are people with guns who make it that way. Yes, you would be speaking German right now if it weren't for the blessed utility of violence. Yes, there have been unspeakable amounts of pain and suffering that have been avoided because people were willing to fight against those who would perpetrate them. I don't disagree with any of that. I'm just here to remind you that none of that matters to you. Because you do not belong to this world anymore. That is not your path. That is not your home. You no longer speak the language of vengeance. No, brothers and sisters, yours is the tongue of grace. Yours is the tongue of patience. Yours is the tongue of unlimited forgiveness. Friends, I have met Christians that spend their entire lives arguing that we should interpret the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis with absolute historical and scientific literalism. Folks who scour the book of Leviticus of all books to, to, to find obscure and almost untranslatable passages to use them to defend their way of life and condemn those who are different than they are. Folks who, 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 who say you go to hell for having a tattoo or, or for having a, a, a weird... Uh, lifestyle of folks who say that, that women who dare to 
preacher condemned, oh, because they want to beat the drum of biblical literalism all the live long day, telling us that the Bible is simple, that it's all right there, all you need to do is just read it and live it, brother, just read it and live it. And then as soon as you remind them that the Bible also says they should love their enemies and turn the other cheek, that at every turn the New Testament prohibits the use of violence in any way, then all of a sudden they miraculously transform into professors of historical criticism in biblical hermeneutics. And you can watch as they jump through ridiculous intellectual hoops to try to tell you that when Jesus said you have to love your enemies, he didn't really mean you have to love your enemies. Come on. My grandpa Eichelberry had a saying that seems particularly appropriate today. He used to say, don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining. We all know what's going on here, and I'm, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Everyone believes what they want to believe. The Bible is incredibly long and complex, and it can be made to say anything. For every billion Christians in the world, there are two billion interpretations of the Bible. But the passage that almost no one wants to be literally true in the most basic possible sense is Jesus' command to love your enemies and to do good to those who persecute you, to give without expecting anything in return. Why is that? Well, two things. One, our entire society is built on that not being true. And number two, the truth is we all have enemies. We all have those that we think ought to get theirs. We have all fantasized about vengeance. We all want to feel protected and secure, and we know deep, deep down that if we took Jesus literally here, if we obeyed the command that he gave us, then we would be less safe. Our children would be less safe. Our country would be less safe. That's all true. But here's the thing. Y'all pay me. You put me up in a house, provide me with an office, and call me your vicar, all so that I can be the one, maybe the only one in your whole world who can tell you, obey it anyway. And no, for the record, I'm not telling anyone that they need to stay in an abusive marriage 
or that they simply have to allow themselves to be assaulted, or that they spend the rest of their life being a doormat. That's not what I mean. That would be pointless suffering, pointless pain, and it's the exact opposite of what Jesus has in mind. Now, what I'm saying is that Jesus commands us as clearly as he commanded anything ever that we must change our disposition toward our enemies. Whoever they are, no matter what they've done, we at least have to try to look at them with the same eyes by which God looks at us. We have to at least try to see the divine image emanating from their person. We have to try to see a child of God. And what does God look when God looks down at us? I don't really know. But from what I can tell, God probably sees fallen, rootless, stubborn children. A whole world of kids who have only known violence, who can't dream of a world that exists by any other means, who don't even know what it is to live in a world of true peace, and who have been so abused and beat up by this fallen world that violence has become something like a native tongue, something that they assume is necessary, something that they don't realize is foreign to who they are and how they were created. Maybe, maybe Jesus commands this because it's the only way to stop the machine. Maybe the only way it's ever going to get better is if someone makes the first move of grace, like, like Joseph. And, and Nell read us this story from Joseph talking to his brothers, and what you have to realize is that they sold him into slavery. Their original intent was to kill him, and they would have done so, except for one of them said, well, if, if he goes into slavery, then at least we can make a little money. They sold him into slavery. And through a dramatic series of events, he now is in Pharaoh's court. He commands Pharaoh's government. He has Pharaoh's army at his disposal. And what does he do when he sees those 11 brothers? He weeps on them. He tells them what they need to do to be safe. And he promises that he will keep them secure. Maybe the only way that God could throw a wrench into the machinery of hatred is by casting not the first stone, but his own son into the gears. Paul says that while we were yet sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. While we were yet enemies, he says, God forgave us and 
made a path for us. Jesus says the measure of forgiveness you give will be the measure you get. A full measure pressed down, shaken together, running over and spilled into your lap. If you don't get that metaphor, what he's talking about here is salt or flour, something anyone in the ancient world would have been familiar with buying. And if you were giving, if you were um, giving someone, making a deal for flour and salt, and they were going to pay you money and you were going to give them the salt, and you were generous, you would pack the salt tightly into the vessel, right? If you wanted to be extra generous on top of it, you might even shake it up and tap the sides and make sure you got all the air bubbles out of it and topped it off right to the lip. But that's not how God gives out forgiveness. God packs it down, shakes it up, tops it off, and then just keeps dumping it into your lap. And that's when he says the measure you give will be the measure you get. But the thing is, we've already gotten that measure. We've already been forgiven of so much. Yes, I know that's a terrible way of doing business. That's not how you run a profit. That's how you go bankrupt. But Jesus says, well, so what? (laughs) Now you go and forgive like that. Give ridiculously. Give wantonly. Give without regard for propriety or profit. And you will be forgiven. You take the first hit. Because I've taken the first hit for you. See folks, for those of us who have been claimed by Christ who have been dunked in the water and marked with the oil, who feast on the bread and the wine, our love, our generosity, our forgiveness is not something that can possibly be meted out in spare rations only to those who absolutely deserve it, only to those who don't pose a threat or who have never hurt us in some kind of way. Why? Because that's not how God dealt with us. And that just doesn't solve the problem. As much as we like to, as much as we like to make the argument that we somehow need violence to restrict the world's chaos, we never stop to think that maybe it's the violence we think we need that keeps the chaos churning. Maybe someone needs to be the one to stop it. Maybe someone needs to be the one to break the cycle, to speak a different language, despite whatever pain and suffering and humiliation might come in its wake. Maybe what this world needs is an army of folks, armed not with the weapons of war, but with yellow legs and broken hearts. It says, okay, you can hurt me if you want to, 
but I'm still gonna love you and refuse to hurt you back. Maybe, just maybe that's how we shut down this machine. And for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of this good earth, I hope you all do a better job than I did. These words I offer to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So how do we live a life where we eschew violence? How do we live in peace? How do we make our commitment to nonviolence known? That's a tough question. I'm not sure of the answer, but I do know that living a life that is committed to nonviolence takes a certain amount of creativity. Joan Baez, the folk singer, was a, uh, a pretty serious pacifist, and someone asked her one day, what might happen if someone held a gun to your grandmother's head and you had a gun? Are you telling me you wouldn't shoot them? And she said, well, am I a good shot in this little example you give? And the person said, yeah, you're, you're a great shot. Sure. She said, well, then I'd shoot the gun out of his hand person said okay okay no no no. you're a terrible shot just an awful shot she said well then i better not shoot i might hit grandma (laughs) or that old story about oh if you could go back in time and kill hitler wouldn't you do it she said you know actually as long as we're going back in time maybe i'd go back a little further and love him as a child show him the kind of grace and affection that apparently he never got friends there's always a way to find peace there's always a way to solve our differences without resorting to violence it's only our own stubbornness and our own lack of creativity that convinces us that violence is necessary And now, friends, may the love of God the Father, the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you, now and always. Amen.